Hi, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the Antarctic Report podcast. I'm Nicholas O'Flaherty, editor of the Antarctic Report, an online portal dedicated to all things about Antarctica. Each week I talk to an outstanding scientist or adventurer, a writer, an historian, environmentalist, policymaker, people who actually work down on the ice itself. In fact, anyone with a real connection to Antarctica and a compelling story to tell. 90 degrees south, the geographic South Pole. Along with the North Pole, it's the only degree of latitude that doesn't form a circle running parallel to the equator. It's simply a point, the southernmost point on Earth. All lines of longitude and time zones meet there. At the South Pole, all directions are north. The first humans to arrive at the Pole were Roald Amundsen and his four companions on the 14th of December 1911. Scott and his team followed six weeks later. While Richard Bird flew over it in 1929, it wasn't until October 1956 that the next humans walked on the South Pole. Gus Shin of the US Navy became the first person to land a plane there. Three months later, in January 1957, the US Navy had completed the first South Pole station, beginning a continuous presence there right up to today. The third and most recent version of the US Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station, as it's now called, is the spectacular elevated building, an engineering marvel that was completed in 2008. To meet the enormous needs of the US scientific research community, the US Antarctic Program is managed by the National Science Foundation, or NSF. The South Pole Station is located at an altitude of 2,800 metres, atop an ice sheet that's more than two and a half kilometres deep. The bedrock far below is a mere 100 metres above sea level. The surface of the ice sheet at the pole moves approximately 10 metres per year in the direction of longitude 40 degrees west, which is towards the Weddell Sea. Each year, the South Pole experiences only one sunrise at the September equinox and one sunset at the March equinox. So for six months, the sun disappears entirely. The last flight of the season leaves the pole in February, with the first plane back arriving in November. For nine months of the year, a core winter over group, usually about 45 to 50 people, maintain the base through the long, dark Antarctic winter. What's it like wintering over at the South Pole? This week on the Antarctic Report podcast, we speak to German astronomer Robert Schwartz, He's currently at the South Pole as the winter comes to an end. This is the 13th time that Robert has wintered over, and that's a record. No one has spent more time at the South Pole than Robert Schwartz. Robert works at the South Pole for the University of Minnesota on a microwave telescope array, which is a series of telescopes that work together as one. It's called the Spud Keck Project, which researches the cosmic microwave background, the electromagnetic radiation left over from Big Bang. It took a few weeks to sort out the right time to call Robert for the interview while he's at the South Pole. We spoke to him in late July this year, 2017. In order to describe the challenges in contacting the South Pole, let me give a brief summary of the satellite communication systems. Satellites in a geosynchronous orbit are in a special high-altitude orbit, about 35,000 kilometres above the equator, 
traveling in the same direction as the Earth's rotation. At that altitude and velocity, the satellite appears to remain stationary from the point of view of an observer on Earth. It almost but not quite stays stationary above a fixed point. In fact, what actually happens is that over 24 hours, geosynchronous satellites do move slightly north and south, leaving a trace pattern on the surface of the Earth that looks like a figure 8. The amount of north-south movement a satellite makes in that pattern is called its inclination. Most geosynchronous satellites have a low inclination. In other words, they don't move too much north or south of their celestial equatorial position. And that's deliberate, of course, to enable them to do such things as broadcast satellite TV to satellite dishes mounted on homes around the world. If you're at the South Pole, however, you can't see these satellites with low inclination because they never appear above the horizon. The curvature of the Earth simply blocks them from view. But there are exceptions. Some geosynchronous satellites do have high inclinations, with the figure 8 pattern on the ground extending further north and south of the equator. For the South Pole, the inclination needs to extend to a minimum 8.7 degrees south of the equator, at which point geosynchronous satellites pop up above the horizon, enabling communication. There are currently three geosynchronous satellites with high north-south inclinations that the South Pole stations specifically use. The NASA TDRS, or Tracking and Data Relay Satellite, is visible for about four hours from the South Pole over a 24-hour period. It's also used by the International Space Station and the Hubble Space Telescope. For South Pole observers, it reaches as high as five degrees above the horizon. At its highest service rate, the satellite offers transmission speeds up to 75 times the speed of a typical residential internet connection. During those brief four hours at the pole, the high-rate service channel is used exclusively to transfer science and operational data files. It was using the TDRS satellite that I was able to speak with Robert Schwartz at the South Pole back in July. Robert Schwartz, welcome to the Antarctic Report. Hello. What is it that you do? What is your profession? Um, I'm a physicist, astronomer by trade, so I studied physics and astronomy back in Germany. I was one year in the United States. Now I mainly work here at the South Pole in the last few years for one of the microwave telescopes. Which, which of the telescopes do you work on? Which one? So currently it's um, Spart Keck, which is one of the telescopes running now since 2011. And we are looking at the cosmic microwave background, which is like the afterglow of the Big Bang. You first went to work at the South Pole in 1996? That's correct, yes. How many times have you worked at the South Pole? So it's my 14th time and like my 13th winter down here. So you have wintered over 13 times? Yes. That must be a record? Yeah, that is correct, yeah. It's um, a record. Like I have more time at the South Pole than anybody else. (laughs) Also more winters at the South Pole, but also more time than anybody else. That is a geographic South Pole. The person who has the uh, second longest amount of time, how many winters overs had the, has that person had at the South Pole? Um, 12 winters. 12, okay. So he was um, there last year as well, and, but he um, didn't come back this year. But that's not the reason why we do it. <laughs> when you're not at the South Pole, where are you working? So like in the last few years, like, uh, I'm basically down here for nine and a half months, and then I have two and a half months off, which... Um, of course, we flying in and out from New Zealand, which is absolutely fabulous. Because when we get out of um, Antarctica in about mid-November, it's 
kind of um, early summer in New Zealand. So, so normally I spend a few weeks there because it's the only summer I get for the whole year. And then I go home for Christmas back home to Germany. So who do you work for? Are you, you Do you work for a university? Do you work for the NSF? I'm, I'm currently working for the University of Minnesota in the US. It's an unusual job you have. What is the attraction for you in working at the South Pole, particularly over winter? First thing that definitely comes to mind are the aurora, the polar lights. Um, they are absolutely amazing. And even after 13 years, um, they are still absolutely amazing. And also the night sky here is fabulous. There's uh, no, no light pollution. And then also normally the people. And um, of course, the job itself, like normally it's a pretty awesome community down here and the people you work with. And also the job is fun, of course. Can you describe a little bit about the telecommunications connections that the South Pole Station has with the outside world? You, you rely on different satellites at different times and some are better than the others. And there are times when you have very poor communications. Yeah. Do you want to describe that a bit? Yes. We have um, three satellites which give us like internet access. Um, one is pretty good. Uh, the other ones are kind of okay. Um, but even like the, the good one is definitely slower than like a fast internet connect from uh, back home. And also this year it was out of order for nearly 75 days. And um, so it's limited to about um, roughly 10, 12 hours of internet access per day if the satellites okay. work. You just get a note, oh yeah, satellite is down, something is wrong with our station, something is wrong with the receiving station in the U.S. One satellite we share with NASA, so if there's any, a spacewalk or stuff like that, then our time is shortened here. And then we have Iridium for phone communication and also um, like a 24-hour email, but it's only for like text, no attachments. Right now we're talking via um, the Tigris um, NASA satellite, and you can hear um, with a delay it's going over a few satellites to actually go from Antarctica to the U.S. Uh, back to New Zealand. So that's why there's always a bit of a time delay. Is there a period in in a day or in a, in a whenever, is there a period, a brief period, where people in the in the station can go online and just surf the internet and read news and do what they like and go to Facebook or, or whatever? Does that, does that period ever exist? Yes, it does, but um, the satellites also shift like four minutes a day. They... Um Rise four minutes early every day, set four minutes earlier. So it can be that that period will be at night. So right now we have um, pretty much satellite coverage from about um, four in the morning until three in the afternoon with um, small gaps in between. And um, the internet usage is prioritized. So like, for example, a phone call, what we do right now has like the highest priority, whereas Facebook uh, has a very low and YouTube even lower. And, but um, so there's the possibility to get on Facebook, but some services are not allowed or not permitted, and it might be also very slow even if they are permitted. You have been uh, going to the South Pole since 1996, so that's quite some time ago now. Can you, can you describe, uh, Robert, a little bit about what, what you have noticed over that time and the, what, the 13 times you've been back and forth to the South Pole over 20 years? Things have clearly changed at the station at the South Pole. What, what do you think has changed the most? Well, the biggest change was definitely um, when we moved from the dome into the new station. So my first two winters were still in the dome, which was kind of like um, the iconic for South Pole for many, many years. And um, late 90s, um, early 2000s, I started with a station upgrade. 
um, to the elevated station we occupy now. Um, and the first winter in the elevated station was 2003, still in a much smaller setting than it is now. And officially, the new station was created in 2008. It also now allows um, quite a few more people to winter over in the dome. It was only 28 people because it was the maximum amount of beds uh, we had inside the dome. And now uh, winter over numbers are around 40 and 50 people. With 86 people in 2005 wintering over, that was the largest crew ever. But that was um, during the full-blown construction phase. So there was a lot of construction going on during the winter months. They would set up the outside shell of a building during summertime and then heat it up and do all the interior work uh, during the eight and a half months of uh, winter down here. And um, the biggest change. Of course, like the first year when you come down here is um, definitely special, like your first winter ever when you uh, see the first time in the sunset for half a year um, at the equinox in, in March. I mean, that's something really special. Well, you never had that before. Like you think, wow, sun is going to be gone now for six months. That's something unusual. And also like, yeah, so the first winter is definitely um, very special. And um, now you get kind of used to uh, things like that, that the sun is up for six months and sun is down for six months. Incidentally, Robert, when does twilight, uh, we're now heading into, very slowly heading out of the southern winter into the southern spring. Uh, Equinox is in September, obviously, when the sun rises. So when when do you start detecting outside that we have a twilight on the horizon? When do you start to see that? So um, we actually just yesterday we moved into astronomical twilight. That means the sun is now 18 degrees uh, below the horizon. Um, we always have the argument because I normally can see the, a very, very, I mean, really, really faint glow of the sun um, towards um, early July. I can tell that that is where the sun is. Um, some people on station will disagree, <laughs> but um, I think I have a very good um, night. But now the moon is up again, and if it um, sets in about uh, 10 days, um, it will be definitely obvious that this um just to the right of Sirius, um, below the horizon. And um, it will take a few more weeks until the Milky Way away. And um, it will be really obvious, but if you look close enough, you will see it now already. Incidentally, Robert, how many times do, do you go outside every day? Uh, what, what the, I, I guess you want to describe, first of all, a typical day. And yeah, how many times do you actually go outside? Is it a requirement for you to go outside every day? Um, so, usually I'm about outside an hour every day. So, our um, telescope is about um, half a mile or 800 meters away from the station. So, you're already out there, like um, about one walk takes about 15 minutes. And then I have to do some work on the telescope outside, check for snow, any snow accumulation inside the four baffles and in the ground shield, and um, do some, just some snow shuffling around the building and on the roof. Uh, make sure of that. And then, if, of course, if there are auroras, uh, I will be out for taking pictures. So roughly at least an hour, I'm outside every day. And a typical day is like, um, I mean, my schedule is determined by by the telescope. So from the roughly uh, so 46 people we have this year, so there's roughly 12 um, people involved with scientific experiments here. And the rest is support personnel. And also support personnel uh, the scheduled day where they start working at um, 
seven in the morning until five in the afternoon with a one-hour lunch break. But for us, um, we shift around because same thing as accounts for the satellites that they are rising four minutes earlier every day and setting four minutes earlier. The same as uh, for our field, like we observe one field in the southern sky basically every day. And after we observe for 42 hours and then we cool our experiment down for six hours again. And so that same field will be at the same location like eight minutes earlier every two days. So it doesn't sound like much, but basically it makes two hours every month. So I kind of slowly shift with telescope. So normally when I get up, I have breakfast. Um, I have like a monitoring computer in my room so that I can check um, the data of the telescope if everything is okay. Uh, that's kind of the first thing when I get up. Up, if everything is okay, I go for breakfast. And then depending on the time of the day, if I'm getting up in the afternoon, I normally stay inside the station for the hours because that happens. We have lots of classes, um, sports events, um, game nights, movie nights. And then I normally head out to the telescope, do like um, just routine work. And every two days when we uh doing the fridge cycle, that's um, normally the time I can do actual work on the telescope without interfering. And as long as the telescope is um, running fine, um, that's no problem. But if something goes wrong, of course, then it needs immediate action whenever that will be. It also has a pager system where it can call me every day at time of the day or night. So if something goes wrong, I, then I have to um, go out. Are you the only person working on that particular telescope or you have colleagues that you share that workload with? No, I'm the only person working for the telescope, but of course there's um, sometimes you need more help. So we have a machinist here, which is um, kind of uh, in a machine shop here um, in the same building who uh, can help me out a lot of times when I need more than two hands and also like from the sister telescope for example we charge that helium line so tomorrow um, evening we have to replace that and that kind of is like a three-person job so yeah you just have to ask um, for a lot of times also um, station personnel is volunteering to help out this um, stuff we even need more people and so it's kind of everybody works hand in hand and sometimes um, you help out other people as well so it, that works pretty well. By the way, a question about auroras. Do you do you have an aurora display? It's not every day, is it? Can can you just describe to people who will never get to the South Pole? In in the winter, you experience aurora most of the time, or how, how does it work? So, it, of course, it depends on the sun activity. So we it also uh, it's determined by the eleven year cycles. Right now, we're pretty close again to the um, solar minimum. But if it's dark enough, um, you will have some aurora activity every day. Sometimes it's not good enough to write home about it, but sometimes we have this really awesome storm. So there's this activity um, zone, like the so-called aurora oval, which is kind of like, um, you can even, even see it like this ring around the geomagnetic poles in space, like you can see like this illuminated, and we kind of just off that ring. During 24 hours, we always have some kind of activity. Sometimes it might be just like some air glow, you don't really see with the naked eye. If you take um, a picture, you will see it. But then now, as it is now, we probably have like once a week, we have a bigger display um, of our all activity, which is really worthwhile taking pictures of. That time will decrease as we get closer to the solar minimum. And if, um, if we are closer to the solar maximum, then this time, like this displays will be even more frequently and the storms will last a bit longer. But there's always, um, like if you take put out the camera outside for 24 hours, you will always see some kind of activity. You, Robert, you have taken some wonderful videos and photos of the aurora. I guess you have been to the South Pole so many times, you've uh, fine-tuned your videography and photography skills. 
Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about where the equipment you use and some of the safeguards you have to take? Because it's very dry and it's dark, obviously. But most importantly, of course, it's very cold to take that sort of video and, and photo, photo, photographic images. Yeah, do you want to describe a little bit about what it takes to, to take great images at the South Pole? Well, thanks, yeah. Yeah, that's quite a challenge. Um, my first year, uh, I still used to slide film. And um, the challenge there was you could expose like um, three pictures at, um, with one exposure maybe of two, three minutes because it was only 108 days light film. And then the film would just break inside the camera when you try to advance it because it was so cold. Um, we're talking about temperatures in the winter down to, yeah, down to minus 80 centigrade ambient. So normally it's around uh, minus 65, minus 70. But that is already, uh, now with digital photography, it's definitely much, much easier. Unprotected camera lasts about 15, 20 minutes, depending on the camera. That's basically when the battery just freezes up and doesn't produce any more electricity. But um, that is normally good enough for like a aurora storm. But if you want to take time lapses and you want to have a camera out for more than a few minutes, like hours, days, um, you definitely need a heated camera box. It works quite well if you just take two water bottles with hot, hot water and maybe 10 centimeters of insulation material and just the lens is sticking out. It kind of lasts for 12 hours. And if you want to go even longer, then you need um, electrically heated boxes. But then, of course, you're limited to the uh, proximity of a building. And um, I'm using uh, right now um, several Canon cameras uh, and a Sony um, A7S, which is like kind of the light monster. And that allows me also to take some real-time video of the errors with like 25 frames per 2.8 um, f-stop and um, 51,200 ISO. So grainy at that um, ISO settings, but you definitely can see how the errors are moving. And it's probably the most amazing thing for people who never seen errors. They normally see this large, like the static images, but um, to actually see um, this uh, very fast-moving project, uh, quite something else. And uh, last week, we had some pretty awesome displays, and the rule of thumb is brighter the auroras are, the faster they move, and it's um, in, in, in real time how fast the auroras can move. Question about working there in the winter and that sense of isolation. You've obviously, uh, you know, after 13 times, you're, you're obviously experienced at it. Do you, uh, and no doubt um, this is just a fact of life working at the South Pole in the winter, but clearly you can't, you can't leave the South Pole in the winter unless it's a medical emergency. Um, can you just psychologically, uh, can you describe what it's like down there? I mean, when you have the opportunity to surf the internet and you're consuming news from around the world, what is that like, uh, that, that, that sense of isolation in the winter? Do you want to describe that? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so um, of course the big can come down here in winter, we have to go through medical medical testing, fit enough, and we don't have any chronic diseases and anything like that. Of course, we have a doctor down here and a PA, which is a physician assistant, uh, during the winter in case something happens. We have a small emergency room uh, for we can do like minor operations, uh, surgeries, and um, but uh, we are isolated for eight and a half months um, out of the year. That means like there's no plane uh, coming in for eight and a half months. We had three. Uh, medical creations so far in South Pole history, one in 2001, um, one in 2003, and uh, one last year. The one in last year was actually one 
day after midwinter, so 22nd of June, which was um, like the first one really in the middle of the winter, which was quite a challenge. But everything went um, very you kind of isolated, but with the internet, you still get um, basically all the news. I definitely have more time to read the news here than back home, and sometimes I'm, I think I'm better informed um, down here what's happening in the world than when I'm traveling or when I'm uh, back home. So sometimes you get this email, it's like, did you hear that? And did you hear that? And like, you, oh yeah, yeah, I read about it like a couple of days ago. Uh, so the internet definitely made a huge difference compared like to the first winter in 56 or in the following ones uh, when they only had kind of ham um, radio was the only connection to the outside world, especially with email. I mean, you're still in, in good content family, which is, um, I mean, a huge improvement over years down here and you don't feel so isolated. Yes, you can't really leave, but on the other side, you still know what's going on in the world. Tell me, Robert, um, you, I, I've read um, some of the winter, the people who spend time in Antarctica uh, over the winter, they they set out to, they have a, like a private goal where they might want to learn a particular language or they might want to read a particular type of literature or learn some particular skill set as a personal goal. Uh, have you ever set yourselves a particular particular task like that where you've decided to improve your Chinese or or what whatever, re- read about philosophy or whatever it may be? Yes, definitely. I mean, that's an important point. Normally, like especially my first year, I ate too many. And after the year, I felt so unfinished. I thought like I had all the time in the world. You don't. It's amazing how fast the time flies by. And especially after my first year, I felt so unfinished. When my boss asked me more like out of fun if I want to come back next year. Yes, I'm coming back next year to kind of finish my goals. And so I have my, my projects like learning a language, improving my Spanish again. I'm working on my little electronic project to work out, get in shape and um it's actually very important to pass the time, and um, and it's a great place. For example, a few years ago, I did all my theoretical work for my New Zealand Coast Guard down here, and then did my exams when I got off here. So it's um, things like that are actually really great to be occupied. And on Friday morning, I am probably ten of us will have um, the American amateur uh, radio license, the ham uh, license. We do the exams, so we had like uh, one of the guys down here. And so we're studying through 1,600 questions over the past month and um, do the exams on Friday morning at 4 a.m. because that's when because we have to do it via um, via video conference with um, some uh, examiners in, in in the states. And um, so it's it's a really great um, thing to to pass time. And it's also like um, from the spare time perspective, uh, we have um, always quite a few classes down here. So, um, as I said, like from the 46 people, only 12 are kind of involved in the science down here and the rest is like support personnel who never looked really at the night sky. So, for example, over the past 13 years, I always give an introduction to astronomy, like a 13-week course, one, one hour per week. And this year we have like a programming class again where somebody teaches programming. We've got um, one of the guys um, teaching a welding class. It's pretty amazing how fast time goes by, and sometimes it's like, oh shit, it's like we don't even have enough evenings in the week to do all that stuff. It's um, pretty amazing, and not mandated from above. It's kind of what people come up. I know that and that stuff. I can teach you doing that and that. So it's um, pretty amazing what we have down here. When does the first plane arrive at the South Pole in the after the winter? So um, there's a um, 
It's a normal plane, like the LC-130, the Hercules, um, planes that come from Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, they normally arrive end of October, November, depending on weather. There's going to be like a handful of planes uh, from Ken Borg, the Canadian operator, that is um, contracted to the U.S. Antarctic program. They will come from the south tip of South America, and they kind of do a few here, and they might already show up like mid of October, but they are only here to basically fuel up, then they're on their way to McMurdo. But the actual first LC-130 is like normally end of October, early November. Also with some new uh, freshies, like so, like this, uh, what we call freshies, like that's um, fresh vegetables and fresh fruit, which is of course a big highlight once you get some of them again after eight and a half months. So that's the uh, that's the best thing about this plan <laughs> is to get um, freshies again. The food the food is good during the winter. If you think about where you are, it's actually pretty amazing. And we have a small appliances with um, a bit of salad and um, like cucumbers and stuff like that. It's hydroponic, and um, so that makes a huge difference. Um, and it's uh, pretty effective. My first winter in the dome, like we, I remember. Uh, we had kind of um, half a cherry tomato per winter and it was just like the best thing ever like after six months you get half a cherry tomato <laughs> and um, but <laughs> now it's it um, uh, pretty awesome we have um, three cooks down and um, so we have uh, breakfast dinner and um, sometimes I think to I lose weight. <laughs> when will you leave? Uh, will, will you leave on the first plane out, or do you stay a little bit longer? No. Um, normally, um, everybody here who's like taking care of one of the experiments, we normally stay um, here until like mid of November, like probably like two weeks after opening, to um, hand it over to somebody in the summer to um, get the experiment going for a few more weeks. So normally, um, like for our experiment. Summer is normally not used for observations, but it's used for upgrading the telescope, what we can't fix in the winter because some of the parts are only accessible from the outside. And in wintertime, it's just um, to call to do that kind of work. But normally, it's like uh, one of the guys from our collaboration comes in and they take over the observations for a couple of more weeks until the main body arrives here and they take one or two of, the re- of our five receivers out and upgrade them. And Saying like yeah until mid of November. Before we finish, Robert, uh, let's go back to the science. Tell me what is it that you're looking for in the cosmic microwave background or CMB? We specifically try to find a polarization in that um, cosmic microwave background. So in science, nobody really doubts the Big Bang anymore. There's enough um, proof for that from very different experimental observations. But there's still a problem with the CMB and, and the Big Bang that, like, um, for example, the horizon problem, the flatness problem, that, like, you look in any direction and the CMB is absolutely homogeneous. Like, it only differs in one part in 100,000. It only can be really so smooth or so homogeneous if it was in physical contact. But um, then given the age of the universe and uh, the time it had to expand, it doesn't really fit. Only if you assume that you have like an inflationary period in the very first second of the early uni- right after the Big Bang, and um, that means like the universe expanded for, for a small fraction of that second exponentially, and since then it's kind of gradually expanding. But it's just a theory, and we try to find some 
um, proof for it. So right now it's kind of the holy grail of um, cosmology. And there's like um, down here at the pole, actually a three experiments trying to look for that. And the worldwide, uh, there's uh, quite a few more experiments trying to find like some proof for that inflation theory, mainly looking at um, polarization in that um, CMB signal. Okay. And, and Robert, tell me, why do you need to work at the South Pole to study the CMB? So for um, microwave astronomy, you want to have, be, want to have a very, very dry atmosphere above you because you're still looking through the atmosphere. And any water in the atmosphere will absorb your microwave radiation. That's why the microwave in your kitchen works so well because every food or drink you put in your microwave contains water with microwaves, but once they absorb, they're gone and you're not going to see them anymore. So you will, you will want to find an environment where it's very, very dry and cold air can uh, contains much, much less water uh, vapor than warm air. So you want to try to find like a really dry um, or cold place. And South Pole right now is... Um, the best accessible place on the Earth's surface. There's another place, Dome A, which is even a bit colder because it's about a thousand meters higher in Antarctica, but there's no stations there yet. And um, so the next step would be to fly satellites in space, but that is much, much more expensive and you're very limited with your experiments and also we can, like in a, on a yearly basis, um, while new technology becomes available. And so South Pole right now is like the best place for CMB observations worldwide. So since you've been going to the South Pole, has has there been any findings from the research that you've undertaken that have furthered our knowledge of the CMB? There was definitely um, a lot of refinements of um, the CMB and, and the structure and that stuff. In, the, in 2014, our sister experiment, ISAT 2, published um, their data and they thought they already found like that polarization and they saw what we try to find. But it turned out like since you... The signal of the CMB is like 0.8 billion years on its way to us. So it kind of um, anything in between kind of might add to the signal. There's not much happening actually since the CMB because the universe is pretty much empty until it reaches our own galaxy. But then in the last um, few uh, light years, it goes through dust in our own galaxy. And that kind of adds up to the signal as well and kind of mimics the polarization we're actually looking for. So in end of 2014, after BICEP 2 published their results, the Planck satellite, um, the ESA satellite from uh, uh, other microwave satellites, which uh, observed at quite a few different wavelengths, that like um, what you just assumed like would add to it at a certain amount, and it's adding much more to the signal than we expected. So um, right now, um, we're still trying to understand the dust better. And um, it could be that all BICEP 2, uh, BICEP 3, and we saw so far is just dust from our own galaxy. Um, but we still try to find out if there's not a real signal in it. And the chances are probably like there could be still up to 50% of a real CMB signal and the polarization pattern we see. And um, so at the moment, we're observing this... Um, um, two telescopes right now, um, kind of under the same people, same collaboration. And um, my current one is mainly looking now at the dust. And BICEP 3, the follow up from BICEP 2, is now um, still observing the CMB and uh, the polarization of the CMB. And we moved up our wavelength and our, our frequency, we shortened our wavelength and we moved up the frequency from like 150 gigahertz to 220 and 270 gigahertz. 
um, which is uh, kind of better to understand the dust, especially if you want to try to find out um, or want to try to find out where the signal is coming from. It's very helpful if you can observe at different frequencies. But since we're looking still through our atmosphere, it's very limited of what frequency range we can use. So a satellite is um, much better for that purpose. I will let you go, Robert, because I know time is precious and that, that's been very, very interesting. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. Yeah, no worries. Like if you, yeah, if you still have any questions, let me know. That was Robert Schwartz, an astronomer wintering over at the South Pole for a record 13th time. If you'd like to know more about Robert and the telescopes at the Pole, check out the episode notes on AntarcticReport.com, where you'll find more weekly episodes of the Antarctic Report podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question or comment, email us at info at AntarcticReport.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Antarctic Report. If you like what we do, you can review the podcast on iTunes. You'll be helping others to find us. Thanks for listening to the Antarctic Report podcast. See you next time.